Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash QGC. This activity is supported by an educational grant from MSD. Welcome to this Pure Voice on Demand activity based on a recent live symposium in Glasgow, Scotland. This video based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hi, hello, and welcome. I'm Anton Posniak from London, and it's wonderful to see you all. I'd like to introduce the faculty, uh,、um, Anna Maria Giretti, who's、uh, from the University of Rome and at King's College London. She's a virologist、uh, and a specialist in resistance. And then Andrew Ustinovsky from the University of Manchester here in the UK,、uh, and he's a, a professor and a, a, and a clinician. Basically, drug resistance has been divided into two, and then there's a third part to it. There's acquired resistance, which most of us have seen, of course, whereby patients are on treatment with viremia, and in the pres presence of the, that drug therapy, the virus mutates and becomes a resistant virus.、Uh, and also, there's transmitted resistance, which is Uh, we're going to see the data later in Europe, but it's, it's relatively rare compared to acquired resistance. And that's when you detect a resistant mutation de novo for the first time in someone who hasn't had treatment、uh, and no history of any antiretroviral exposure. Now, both of those, okay, we, we know very well, but、um, resistance that was in the plasma, once you become undetectable, can still be. Located within the cells, within the HIV provirus. So it's basically archived. It's stored there. And at some stage,、uh, it could actually come back out again if you become viremic. So acquired and transmitted, and then archived resistance. Okay, so let's have a look at the results. Okay, so yeah, this is very interesting. So、uh, nobody said never.、Uh, there are some parts of the world where it's not available, but I'm, I'm glad at least. Uh, that perhaps we've,、uh, we, it, it is that,、uh, you know, it is available in most places now. At HIV diagnosis, about 10%.、Uh, before the initiation of treatment, you can see that, that, and at virological failure, but most of us, over half, do it at both times, at diagnosis and at virological failure. I, I just quickly, Andy, in Manchester. Yeah, I would do the HIV diagnosis and virological failure. So the first time someone's diagnosed,、um, you really want to catch their virus to see what's going on in that transmitted drug resistance, and then absolutely in virological failure. And if it's persistent virological failure, sometimes you end up doing it a couple of times、um, if you haven't actually been able to correct it. But I would have chosen、uh, the same as the 53%. Anna Maria? Same. Same, same again. Yeah, okay. So I think most of us are doing that.、Um, There have been data around where, where it may be that at virological failure, depending on when you fail,、uh, you can, you can uh, treat algorithmically, but、um, most of us will do that where it's available. Okay, Anna Maria, I'm going to hand over to you now to talk about drug resistance testing, which is one of your special、uh, areas of interest. Yes, thank you. I really would like to start just by summarizing、uh, briefly how we detect drug resistance.、Um, Uh, currently, so we use,、um, obviously we sequence the virus. So sometimes it's the whole virus, most commonly is the region of interest, reverse transcriptase, protease, integrase.、Uh, 
Um, and then we do this by one or two methodologies, uh, Sanger sequencing, uh, which is the traditional way we've been using for many years, which detects the virus variants which are dominant within a patient sample. They need to represent at least 20% of the total virus population um, present in the sample to be detected. Um, more recently, we've been using next-generation sequencing, which can also detect variants which are less frequent, so between 2 and 20 percent um, reliably, and also gives us a quantitative estimate of how much resistance there is in a sample. There are pros and cons with both um, methods, um, Sanger, sensitivity issues, as we said, with NGS, next-generation sequencing, is the complexity of interpretation um, that is the major uh, issue we face. So if we look at how we then interpret the results of sequencing, we often use um, interpretation algorithms, very commonly the Stanford um, database is used, and this will tell us whether there are mutations which are major or minor mutations affecting uh, drug resistance. Um, one important takeaway message from this particular slide is the concept of cross-resistance. Um, if we take, for example, the panel on the um, uh, upper left, we can see that for the NNRTIs, there are some mutations that really contribute quite extensive cross-resistance, like the 181, for example, those are codon 181, whereas others, classically the K103N, um, have a more selective impact on nevarapine and efavirenz compared to um, other uh, NNRTIs. Uh, but cross-resistance can be also appreciated for other uh, drugs. For instance, for the integrase inhibitors, there is quite significant cross-resistance. So as Anton said, what, what, what is the prevalence of drug resistance? We've recently seen data presented um, from a large European data set looking at the um, prevalence of drug resistance in treatment experience patients. And what these data show with the first graph is, first of all, the fact that the prevalence of resistance to three or four uh, drug classes peaked um, in, in the sort of early uh, 2000 and so, but then has been declining and is really at low level in more recent, um, uh, in more recent uh, tests. If we look at the type of resistance which is detected, uh, then the most common is NRTI resistance followed by NNRTI protease. For the integrase inhibitors, we've seen a little increase in recent years, but um, we will see what happens in the future. It, it, it's likely that it, it will probably plateau, but let's, let's see. In terms of transmitted drug resistance, this is a data set that looks at, uh, again, European um, uh, prevalence, uh, telling us that about overall 13% or so have transmitted drug resistance, but really there is a large variability from region to region, from center to center even, in some studies. One important takeaway message is about the uh, prevalence of transmitted drug resistance for the integrase inhibitors. When we look at data, uh, recent data um, uh, from 2018-2021, we see that in this data set, the prevalence of integrase resistance was only 0.2% um, in people who were naive to treatment. So very low uh, prevalence of transmitted drug resistance for the integrase inhibitors. Okay. Thanks very much. I'll just take that. Great. So, practical management of HIV drug resistance. Well, that's partly what we're going to be talking about today, and we probably do things slightly differently in different centers and different clinicians. Um, but we do have some principles, and, and this is really taken from some of the international and national guidelines that are out there. 
So for treatment-naive uh, individuals, triple antiretroviral therapy containing the second-generation integrases, bictegravir and dolotegravir, or a boosted protease inhibitor, nowadays usually boosted darinavir, uh, are not expected to be significantly impacted by the data we were just seeing about transmitted drug resistance. And the advantage is these regimens also have a high barrier to resistance, um, and so hopefully less emergent resistance whilst on them. But for second lines of treatment, really we do need that resistance testing. So it goes back to that question of who's testing resistance testing uh, whilst uh, someone is failing. And that resistance testing is what should partially guide your next steps. And for such individuals, it really needs to be a case-by-case discussion and a case-by-case decision. There are algorithms that have been tried, but if you have the facilities to get the data, case-by-case is much better. And just to comment that you can recycle some of the nukes. Um, for instance, TDF and uh, FTC, 3TC, um, can still be used in recycling, even in the presence of some resistance. But they wouldn't be fully active necessarily. So when you've got someone who's developed resistance, what else are you going to do? Well, at least two and preferably three active drugs in the new regimen. This is, de- this is our policy and this is what we've been doing for countless years now. And this should be based on those resistance mutations. The new regimen could include just two fully active agents, but that's really if you have at least one of those that is completely active and has a high barrier to resistance. So it's going back to that second generation integrase and the boosted protease inhibitors. And a prompt switch to another active regimen using the results of both the current but also the previous Uh, resistance testing profiles for that archived resistance which may not be there in the sample you've just taken is really important. I think that what uh, your summary is great and and I think that what most of us are doing now for those patients are multidisciplinary clinics so that we've got everybody involved in making the choices for the patients and from this first section I'm really really summarizing okay there's acquired and transmitted resistance and both can lead to archiving which could have an impact later on uh, on future treatment choices. Uh, the rates we've seen from uh, Anna Maria of acquired resistance are falling overall. I think that's basically population viral control is, is really driving that mainly. Uh, uh, but small increases over recent years in the first generation instances. I think that that's where we've been seeing those integrase uh, slight rises, but it's still quite small. And managing drug resistance, all this knowledge that we need to gather. And it's a lot of work, actually, trying to find out all the regimens people have been on, especially if they move from clinic to clinic, uh, all the drug-resistant patterns, again, if they've transferred from another clinic, trying to find that, even in the same country where you all work together. But when people have come from elsewhere, it can be challenging. But if you can do that, that's really important in managing their drug resistance. I'm going to move on to the cases uh, and um, uh, and the first one is all around treatment naive and this is a treatment naive a- a- adult with a common transmitted drug resistant mutation. Great. Well, thanks very much. Back to me. So this is John. John's a 46 year old man who's actually admitted to hospital for angina and angiography is undertaken and a stent's inserted, and as is routine practice after a stent, he's commenced on ticagrelor and aspirin. He's already known to be hypertensive, carries on his amlodipine, tells us he's going to try and give up smoking, currently smoking 20 cigarettes per day. He is overweight, BMI of around 31, a strong cardiac family history, father, paternal uncle, all MIs under the age of 60. And 
in our department or in our hospital, uh, which is an area of high prevalence of HIV in the community, there is a program to encourage people, regardless of your reason for being admitted, to be offered an HIV test. And this occurs with this gentleman. He's offered a routine HIV test. Previous history, depression. Social history, no current partners and no known HIV positive partners, but his HIV test returns as being positive. His CD4 count is 446, not bad. Viral load, a little bit over 100,000. But importantly, we've done that drug resistance testing on his first sample, and he has baseline genotypic resistance with a K103N mutation. So heavily biased towards an INSTI-based regimen. So about one in 10 people would go for an NNRTI-based therapy, and we'll discuss some of these options in a second. He does have a K103N, but would that exclude us going for that? A PI-based therapy, not very many, 3.5%. There are some potential drug-drug interactions we might be um, needing to consider here. An INSTI-based therapy, obviously the vast majority. Um, he has got depression. He is overweight. I'll be interested in my um, co-panelists in whether they take that into account. Another therapy, I won't ask who, 1.75%. Um, and no therapy, 0%. Perhaps if we went back 15, 20 years, there might have been a few more no therapies. So, so, Andy, can I just ask you, I mean, I think integrases are now available pretty globally. There's, I, I, I've not heard of countries, and maybe if there's somebody there could let us know whether they're not available, the new generation, at least Olitegravir has been uh, pretty globally available. Uh, and I, I just wonder, um, looking at those answers, uh, that's probably being, most of us would go for that as a default, wouldn't we? I think so. Well, I, I guess... That's to explore, isn't it? So maybe I'll ask a few questions and then we'll see where we go. Um, but yes, I probably would have gone for an INSTI-based regimen as well, but I'd be interested to know who, what my panelists go for. Um, let me ask Anna Maria a question first. You know, we've got a K103N, but what comes up in our meetings and our MDTs is saying, well, we know we can see that in the first sample, but how sure are we that that's the only resistance? Is there other non-nuke resistance mutations? Because the K103N really only affects novirapine and efavirenz um, and shouldn't really affect rolpivirine, doravirine, et cetera. Um, am, can I be confident that there isn't other non-nuke resistance? And what about other archived resistance, an M184V affecting FTC, 3TC, et cetera? So what, what I can see, is that all that there is there or might there be more? There could be more. Of course, there could be more, and it all really depends on the time which has passed since infection and testing, um, how likely that is. And, of course, the methodology, as we said, if you're using um, standard Sanger sequencing, we will not be able to detect something which may be present at low level. But from an epidemiological perspective, given the characteristics of, that, of, the, of the case that you illustrated, we have data to suggest that it's probably unlikely that there is much more uh, in this patient. These are data that have looked at people with transmitted drug resistance with more sensitive techniques and asked the question, is there anything else? Occasionally you find the case, but commonly you don't find anything else. Of course, you, you can never be 100% sure. And uh, that is the hmm. problem we have. We have no technique to make you completely Yeah, sure. and in our multidisciplinary meetings, we're often saying, oh, yes, but I'm not sure that the... 3TC or FTC is going to be fully active, therefore I'm not sure about going for that regimen, etc., and, and tend to go for the higher barrier. Um, so, Anton, you've alluded to the fact that you'll go for an integrase, probably, is that right? Yeah. Um, 
especially with this, as Anna Maria says, this sort of it's going to be by itself. Um, so you you could use a um, a second generation NNRTI, uh, there's, but there's the trouble is in transmitted resistance. We don't have a lot of data, data so we have some data um, that we could use. Um, but it's not really a lot of data. In acquired resistance, a bit more data for, for say, um, real pivarine or duraverine. But really, in these acquired resistance patients, we, we don't really have a lot. So I think I'd go for the, the very safe option here, which would be to, to start a drug that has the K103 has no impact on whatsoever, which would be an integrase. And out of interest, would you um, and your, your colleagues, would you go for a two-drug regimen with an integrase, or would you want the third drug in case there was the 184V or something else there? Well, obviously, with two-drug regimens, there's lots of other things to think about. Um, the viral load, but this, yes. this guy's viral load was... Uh, uh, just over 100,000. 100, yeah, okay. Uh, but it was less than 500,000, which was the sort of cut-off for the studies. Um, and also the hepatitis B status. Yep. Those are two of the big things that you have to think about. But again, in, a <laughs> in, in transmitted resistance, I don't know how much data we've got. It should work, but we don't have a lot of data. So I think I just, it's the first time this person's going on treatment. The last thing I want to do is, is, is something that's off track and, and I would um, give them triple therapy. If they went undetectable, yeah, I would seriously consider then that they could go on to dual therapy. But at the, at the time of this uh, starting, I think I would, I'd be very cautious. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, de-escalation. Um, and I would probably uh, think about the same. I'd go for the integrase. The, the trouble with the boosted protease inhibitors mm -hmm. is the ticagrelor, which I can't say, um, which is significantly boosted. And so there's a contraindication with using that with a boosted agent. Um, the, um, the depression and the overweight wouldn't put me off using an integrase, um, or, um, but you might want to monitor the weight, etc. This is a topic for another day, I think. Um, and the non-nukes, you could use a non-nuke that wasn't efavirenz or nevirapine, but I still have that hesitation about knowing about whether the nukes are fully active, despite what you've said. Thank you very much. Uh, so, just to point out, the current guidelines for antiretroviral naives are very heavily biased towards the second-generation integrases, as you can see here. Um, though there is raltegravir and doravirine in the EACS guidelines. So in a way, the majority of the guidelines would cover this uh, instance of drug resistance, considering the, uh, the conversation that we've just had. But it's important when you're thinking about someone with resistance to look at the kind of multifaceted nature of it. We can concentrate on the virus, we can concentrate on the individual, but actually we have to concentrate on at least three different things. So we have to concentrate on the virus. So what are the pre-antiretroviral HIV um, viral load levels, and if it's above 100,000 or above 500,000, it may co relatively contraindicate some products that we might want to use. Drug resistance is an issue, in particular in this case. Tropism can be an issue in some individuals. And then the drugs themselves, so virological potency. Well, I would argue most of the first-line regimens that we use nowadays are, are really of good enough potency, equivalent potency. Um, the difference is barrier to resistance, and then the difference is also pharmacokinetics, food interactions, drug interactions, and in some settings, prescription quality. And then obviously we need to think about the patient as well. Um, their current and adhere CD4 count, their disease state, but then things like adherence or concordance, psychosocial context, the stigma, tolerability, pill burden, dosing frequency. There's no point in us prescribing things which are difficult for that individual to take long-term. And then there's obviously comorbidities, polypharmacy, mm -hmm. and access to care. But let me pass over to the second case. Thank you.
So this is a, another uh, patient who's naive to treatment and has a, a high viral load. Um, he um, was recently diagnosed with HIV infection. The CD4 count is 418. The viral load, as we said, is high. In this case, it's over 500,000. This is a 25-year-old uh, man who also describes a history of a recent flu-like illness and a rash about two months prior to the diagnosis. You see the other test results there, and in particular, the results of the basal resistance test indicating the presence of 215D in reverse transcriptase. Um, one important thing to notice is that probably the history suggests a likely recent primary HIV infection. Okay, so that's an interesting breakdown, don't you think? Uh -huh. of, uh, so a slight majority will take into consideration the resistance mutation, but as the one factor, and I'm sure everybody will probably want to consider multiple factors in the history. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, obviously the viral load, because some, some um, therapies you're concerned about greater than 500, like the dual therapy that's not been validated above 500,000 uh, 500, so far with Dodecegovir 3TC. Um, resistant mutations are really important because if you found you had a significant integrase mutation there or a significant NNRTI, you would... You would take that into account. So I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's a combination. Yeah. Primary infection, there was this whole theory that we needed more than three drugs because of viral loads. And I, I don't know where that's got to, but uh, most of us will still treat with three drugs. The problem is you always hear of the occasional patient that, that didn't uh, do well. But I, yes. I don't know if either of you uh, change your prescribing habits dependent on acute seroconversion. No, I, I don't. Um, and as you've alluded to, actually, I, I'm just trying to think then when the last time I saw someone recently seroconverting, um, and it's been a while, actually, for, for various reasons. Um, but that wouldn't affect my choice. Um, so mm -hmm. absolutely the resistance mutation, the viral load maybe. The recent primary infection, I would use the same regimen, I think, as if it was um, not a recent primary infection. And uh, I'd agree that actually a CD4 count wouldn't influence my decision in age, wouldn't significantly affect my decision-making unless I knew about co-medications and co-morbidities. And, and I mean, the big stress for these patients is if there's a clinical trial, <laughs> please recruit them into the yes, clinical trial yes, because it, they're very difficult to, uh, to find and recruit into. But yeah, if you, do, if you have a, a unit where clinical trials in seroconverters are going on, then it's absolutely important to ask the patient whether they consider being in one. Okay, so a um, bit of interpretation here of the resistance, uh, since it is a concern, um, as we said. This is a 215D. This is a thymidine analog mutation. It's actually a revertant of the major drug resistance mutation, which would be 215Y or F. And it's taken as signaling the potential presence in the patient of the major mutations, 215Y or F, uh, from which the 215D will have derived as you can see, uh, the Stanford interpretation will only assign a low-level resistance to zidobudine with no effects on other um, NRTIs. Now, what do we do with this type of mutations? First of all, important to notice, this is one of the most common forms of transmitted drug resistance we see across Europe in patients with a recent HIV infection. This is true, for instance, for the UK. These are data from the UK. We ask the question, what happens to patients that have thymidine analog mutations as transmitted drug resistance? And in particular, in this population, most had just a single 
TAM, um, and uh, very commonly they had a 215 reverse turn. So very much like the case we're illustrating. We asked the question, how do they do if they start on a boosted PI rather than on two NRTIs plus an NNRTI, which is in this case was a favidence. So, so a drug which we define as a low barrier to resistance. And the bottom line is that actually patients on the NNRTI regimen did better in terms of virological outcomes than patients on the boost PI. And there were a number of factors modulating outcomes, but resistance, the, two, the 215 revertans, the single TAMs were not impactful in terms of um, virological outcomes. So, so can yes. I ask you, Anna Maria, yes. the, is this revertant, does it revert in vivo in that patient we've just seen, Could or have. was it... Was it revertant in a patient that transmitted Prior. it? Prior. Both, both scenarios are possible. Okay. Yes. Both scenarios are possible. Yes. And that's because it's more fit, is it? This because revertant? the 15 YRF will be unfit. And yeah. so the virus tends to revert back quite quickly, in fact, if it's transmitted as YRF, will tend to revert back as soon as it can to this better fit Okay. Um, intermediate. Thanks. So pinning you down a bit more on that, so would you, if you were in a meeting, multidisciplinary team meeting, would you view this as the same as a YRF because you might think, oh, it's just recently been one and it may have been transmitted, or would you view it as only having a, a mild bit of um, yes. resistance to... So again, it's the epidemiology epidemiological context of, of um, Northern Europe, recent infection in, in a certain population, where we actually have data to suggest that the majority have acquired the virus as a revertant, and they don't harbor 215 YRF. So I will be quite convinced that probably there isn't the Y or the F. I cannot be sure, but the epidemiological settings will suggest that that is the case. So let me just, one more, sorry about this, because I think it's important for everyone to understand. Uh, imagine you're in a, a high prevalence HIV area um, where there's a lot of transmission going on. This, the, 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 the patient now could have a combination. Correct. So we didn't pick up the, yes. the other. Yeah. So in a scenario where there is a lot of, there are a lot of people with viremia and resistance passing on a resistant virus, then the scenario is different. Okay. Here is most likely the scenario is that the patient with the revertant is actually acquiring the infection for someone who's naive to treatment themselves. So it's a chain of transmission of a resistant variance. Okay. From Thanks. naive to naive. Okay, so remember what we said about the two different methodologies. Just to remind you, uh, next generation sequencing, the cutoff is around 2%. Sanger is around 20%. With this concept in mind, I'll show you some data about transmitted drug resistance. This is England, looking specifically at a patient with a recent uh, HIV infection acquired within the previous four months, using next-generation sequencing and two different cutoffs for interpretation. So if you look at the table on the upper um, right of the screen, you can see that if you use the uh, higher cutoff for 20%, uh, then you see the prevalence of resistance is highest for the NRTIs, um, uh, followed by uh, NNRTIs and PIs. Zero transmitted drug resistance in this period, 2014-2016, for the integrase inhibitors, so zero. If you lower the cutoff and you say, I'm going to also count variants which are present at low frequency in the patient samples, then you find 4% actually had some mutations affecting integrase inhibitors. So the key question here is, you know, do they matter? And the answer is that we don't have the data, although we can probably extrapolate that for the current generation integrase inhibitors, uh, Bictegravir, Dolutegravir, it's unlikely 
that low frequency transmitted integrase inhibitors will have a significant impact. But it's a data-free um, you know, concept I'm, I'm reporting here. The arrow here shows you the prevalence of the revertant, indeed, as being a very, very common form of transmitted drug resistance. But importantly, we rarely see combination of uh, more than one class of drug resistance being transmitted, going back to the issue of what else may be hidden, also when using next-generation sequencing. Okay, so I think we can just summarize this case by saying that in an epidemiological setting, such as where we operate, for instance, uh, here in the UK, um, in uh, young men being um, uh, acquiring a recent HIV infection, the detection of a transmitted drug resistance, particularly of these thymidine animal mutations, is most likely the consequence of chains of transmissions from naive to naive um, with uh, basically maybe the, the source not even having been diagnosed with HIV. And I will hand over to you for the summary. Yeah, um, well, I mean, from this case, it's, uh, these two cases being very interesting about transmitted drug resistance, how uncommon it is, but important for making our drug choices. So this the very first polling question about finding out what was going on at the beginning uh, um, in terms of initial drug resistance testing was most important. These, this revert mutants is really interesting, and as it's, uh, you showed the 215D was common in Europe, and, and I mean, and the understanding of how that arises, um, and that actually it's not causing significant issues for, for most of us in terms of choosing our first regimen, so we shouldn't be too concerned about what nucleosides we're choosing when we see that. Um, and the next generation sequencing, I mean, you know, it's, uh, 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 we don't use it very much at all. Uh, and we, we, we really need to know how to use that. There were some good cutoffs for ephedrines, about 5%, but I mean, nobody's using ephedrines these days. So that's old data. Uh, and Andy, just before we move on to the next case, um, uh, are you using that at all? No, and I was thinking that when Anna Maria was talking about the the four percent that seems to be there for the integrase mm -hmm. when it's zero percent at Sanger, and I was thinking, well, actually, that's not a practical kind of conundrum for me because we're we're not doing next generation sequencing, so <laughs> I just get a result that says integrase resistance <laughs> zero, and act on that. So. What would I do if I started getting reports saying that? I don't know. I'd probably phone a clever virologist like Anna Maria saying, can you interpret this for me? Because it's not, a, not an issue or an area that I, I'm used to. I just get the Sanger and, and zero. Yeah, and we've done pretty well on that. But it mm. would be nice to get fantastic data on yeah. uh, this deep sequencing for, to, to see whether or not we actually need to do it. Yes, and the outcomes. I think we need data on outcomes. Yeah, yes. yeah, of course. For, of the low, yeah. of, with the low frequency it's, for yeah. the integration. Uh, but it may be useful epidemiologically because if you can find the low level rising, 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 okay. there may be a cutoff at what time you, you, you get into the Sanger sequence yeah. and then you have to yes. worry about what your strategies might be for antiretroviral therapy. Yes. I think, no, oh, sorry, I, was, I think knowing that tipping point would be really good, whether it's a 5%, 10% or whatever else would be, would be really important. I don't believe that the 4% is truly impactful because I think we'd see more failures on, on integrases if really 4% of the people we were starting on it uh, were going to fail because of resistance. So, so I think there must be a tipping point that's higher than the 2% cutoff for next generation. I mean, it depends on the drug. Of course, it depends on the drug. So I think for the, as I said, the uh, high barrier drugs, probably not impactful like we saw mm -hmm. this in the past for the boosted PIs. But if you were in a situation, high viral load, perhaps a first generation integrase inhibitors, perhaps problems with adherence, perhaps, you know, other mm. factors, then maybe you start seeing an impact of this yeah. low frequency mutants. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think we move on to myself again with another case. This is now a virologically suppressed 53-year-old woman. Was diagnosed back in 1987, so has a long treatment history starting from 1995. You can see her uh, past um, FC, which has been cured, past FB, a few problems, comorbidities, cardiovascular disease, in terms of family history, some hypertension. Um, so this is her situation uh, at present. But as we said, highly treatment experience, and this is her uh, treatment history. Uh, she had NRTIs, she had PIs, she more recently had Raltegravir, she's also experienced Maraviroc. As you can see, during this period up to 2014, there was no exposure to the NNRTIs, but she was never consistently virologically suppressed. In uh, November 2021, while she receiving uh, boosted the Darunavir and Raltegravir twice daily, she changes the uh, center of care, so moves to a different center. And here is the viral load, the more recent viral loads done in 2021. As you can see, there are around 3,000 or so. And the CD4 count is 317. A request is sent out for resistance testing on the plasma RNA. And in the meantime, the regimen is switched to Big Tegravir, FTC, and TAF on the 31st of December. So the resistance test then comes back and it gives us uh, this particular scenario that you can see here. Um, so remember, she's on boosted Darunavir plus Raltegravir. The tropism is R5. There is no resistance in the reverse transcriptase. Uh, there are resistance mutations in the protease, including some uh, resistance mutations that affect, uh, as you can see, Darunavir at low level. Uh, there are some Darunavir mutations uh, um, uh, listed, uh, including the I84V. And then there are two mutations in integrase. One is a major mutation, 121, and one is a, um, uh, a, an accessory mutation, uh, which is the 157. So what does the Stanford interpretation tell us is that there is high-level resistance to L-Vitegravir and Raltegravir and potential low-level resistance to Dolutegravir and Bictegravir. So uh, at this point, then there is a multidisciplinary um, team discussion and um, there is some uncertainty. There is a, a long treatment history. There is a long period of varemia on Raltegravir. Um, there is a lot of um, um, swapping and changing in the past from one regimen to the other. So the question is basically formulated as to whether there may be more resistance that we haven't picked up on the plasma. And therefore, a request is made to also sequence the uh, PBMCs, the HIV DNA in the PBMC, looking for what may be um, perhaps archived. And the results come back uh, from the um, PBMCs, which are tested by both Sanger and Next Generation Sequencing in order to give as much sensitivity as we can uh, obtain. And basically, there isn't much difference between the plasma and the DNA, except that the DNA testing, remember now the patient has been suppressed uh, for two consecutive viral loads, and the uh, DNA testing tells us that there is a D67 DRN. Um, uh, only when using next-generation sequencing. And this is another thymidine analog mutation, which is consistent with the previous treatment history. So, Anna-Maria, can I just butt in there? Because the 121Y on its own, I don't know how uh, typical that is. I mean, sorry to talk numbers, but usually you see a 155 or a yes. 148 
yeah, with these sorts of people who have failed, uh, been failing, uh, have had virological failure, sorry, on raltegravir for a long time. And yet we just see this 121Y, which doesn't seem to be in the deep sequencing, just in the Sanger. No, no, it's also in the deep sequencing. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, it's so in both, yeah. It's in both, There's yes. nothing else that we found. And 157, which is an accessory yeah. probably contributing to the virus, um, you know, overall profile. Um, it, it's not the most common. It does have an impact on integrase resistance, not as big on, um, we will see perhaps later on, or as big on um, the current generation Dolcegravir-Bictegravir as it is on the first generation. So it's a, it's a, um, nonetheless it has. It has but do you think it's impact. unusual? You just see that? It's less common than what, yeah. we, what we see normally, yes. Okay, so we have, the vast majority will not change the treatment. Mm -hmm. Are you surprised by this finding? Um, well, I'll start off. I probably would have voted yes, actually. Um, so I'll, be, I'll put it out there. They're undetectable now, which is excellent. And it sounds like the first time undetectable for many, many years. But I suppose my take on it is to make sure they stay undetectable in the longer term. And if they get it wrong this time, or if we get it wrong this time more appropriately, then actually their resistance mutations might make that, that particular virus really hard to control. So I wonder about adding something onto the present regimen just to make it slightly more robust um, and prevent further resistance development, which could cause a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, and the reason I was questioning you before about this 121 just on its own is whether or not we're missing something here. And someone who's had so much uh, first-generation integrated resistance exposure, so I, I, I'd just be a little anxious that they may go undetectable for a few months, and this is only a few months so far, and then break through. So it, it may be that I'd, I'd lose my nerve and change and add something in. But um, I understand why people, they see undetectable, it's working. And in fact, some of the recent data, maybe we can talk about that later, about how we, how we look at resistance testing has changed. Um, and I can understand why people would just say, let's hang on a bit longer. We can monitor the viral load regularly. Uh, and if we start to see any rise in viral load, then we, we'll reconsider. So the, the, the risk here, if I may sort of add, the risk is that we have, a, as you said, high sort of uh, long treatment history uh, with overall sort of viremia, ongoing viremia. Our tests are not perfect in terms of what we can detect and what we miss. And... Um, also, there is the issue that, in fact, there has been quite a prolonged period of viremia on raltegravir. And I think that we really don't have data that will support us to then do a switch uh, in a viremic patient with some integrase resistance in the presence of viremia, uh, do a switch to a big tegravir, um, TAF and FTC. The data are not there to support this particular strategy. And it is risky because if there is viremia, then actually, if you like, the integrated resistance pathway has already been started and it will be easy for the virus to develop additional resistance. And yeah. then, obviously, we... Yeah, and you probably have to give Darinavir BD with those three Darinavir mutations there, which might yes. cause a problem. But uh, it's, it's great to have this sort of polemic-type conversation with this <laughs> controversy, and it just it comes down to the fact that we don't have all the data we need. And secondly, that medicine is an art in a way, and uh, we have to, as Andy showed in that slide, with all the different various, various things, we have to consider the patient as a whole and not just the mutations. 
Yeah, so, so this is again the sort of just to conclude on the interpretation of that mutation because it's uncommon, um, uh, we don't hear about it very often. But it, as I said earlier, it, it does have a, a big impact on L-vitegravir and valtegravir. But as you can see, it's not neutral as far as uh, big tegravir and dolutegravir are concerned. Uh, so there is some uh, resistance effects. There are resistance effects for that as well. What was done clinically here actually was decided that there was too much of a risk in um, not uh, doing something to intensify the regimen. And what was done was to add doravirin to the regimen. Um, and again, we are really in a territory where the data set is not very large, but at the last uh, AIDS conference in July, there were 20 patients reported, um, not like the patient we're discussing, but nonetheless, they were suppressed and they were started on the combination of Bictegravir, TAF, FTC plus Doravirin. And what was reassuring about this 20 patients is that they didn't see safety signals and the PK data were in support of uh, the combination. So um, it, it, that's what was decided. So intensification was thought to be important for the longer term. Yeah, but I, and I, I'm sure that you had a multidisciplinary chat about this in your discussion about that. Because, I, and then, I, I, then you get this. Some people say let's go with it. Let some people say change. And then, the whole, the whole. That's what's good about I think in complex cases like this uh, lady to have several people in the room to to really come down to a, a management plan because it's not just about the drug and the virus. Absolutely so. not. It's the yeah. patient as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly the main thing. Great. Well, I'm going to do the next case, and I'll whiz through so we still have plenty of time for questions at the end. Um, and this actually is John again, the first individual, um, but without the K103N is transmitted drug resistance. Let's get that out of the... Forget he ever had that. He, he didn't have it. But things have gone well over the last few years. He's no longer troubled by angina. He stopped his ticagrelor after 12 months that was planned, remains on the aspirin and amlodipine. He's actually on Rilpivirine, TDF, and FTC. Given up smoking, but not doing quite so well with his weight. And you can see his parameters there, undetectable. He's not um, really had a detectable virus and no resistance is known. But he actually starts developing upper abdominal pain. He goes to primary care, who suggests a trial of proton pump inhibitors. But we try and tell all our patients that if someone else wants to start new medicines, or if they want to start new medicines, even over-the-counter medicines, please phone us up before they start taking them. And he did this. Is it okay to take? The answer is no. Proton pump inhibitors and ropivirine, um, contraindication there, drug-drug interaction. So he en ends up coming to your clinic, actually. The abdominal pain's continued. There's no improvement in his symptoms, but he's now got fever and weight loss. A CT scan shows some lymphadenopathy in his abdomen and some mild lung changes, and on radiology review, they think it looks quite a lot like TB. So the plan is commence TB treatment after respiratory samples are taken. Um, the answer is um, absolutely you need to consider switching because of um, a significant drug-drug interaction with rifampicin with his current regimen. So in reality, he changes to dolotegravir, 50 milligrams twice daily, which is our routine practice, keeps going on the TDF and FTC, those are the TB therapies he started. And he settles into new treatment well, starts to get better. Um, but a friend says, oh, if you want to get better even quicker, take St. John's wort. Now, he's still good and phones us up. And the answer is no. There's a drug-drug interaction. So thank God he phones us up. But 
People with tuberculosis in our unit often have their vitamin D checked um, because there's an interaction, really, or an interplay between being low in vitamin D and having clinical tuberculosis. And the level turns out to be no. He's seen by, or he's called back by a junior doctor who's not normally part of our team and commenced on vitamin D replacement with calcium. Not that he really needed the calcium anyway. He doesn't phone, as it was our unit that was telling him to take these drugs and unfortunately, there is a significant interaction with divalent cations, including calcium, with integrase inhibitors. And if you're using dolotegravir, um, the SMPC says um, a two or a six hour window, depending on, uh, on which one's first. Um, though the US data says actually if you, you can potentially have both together if you take them with food, but there is a significant interaction. He's on the dolotegravir twice a day. Um, and when he attends our unit, his viral load's detectable. He's got a genotypic resistance assay, which shows a 184V, the INST resistance fails, but I'd assume that there was a good chance he might be integrase resistant. He switched to a boosted protease inhibitor, which then means we have to change his TB therapy. So the moral of the story is to keep people undetectable and resistance-free, you need patient education, communication, and ongoing vigilance and ongoing reaffirmment, including to your teams, actually, about what interactions there are and what there aren't. So, another example, multifaceted nature, particularly this one, pharmacokinetics, drug-drug interactions, etc. So, Okay, well, that was fascinating because um, <laughs> he did all the right things all the way along. Huh? Um, and it, it is tough, I think, for clinicians to have in their heads all of the all, all types of drug resistance and I mean we use the Liverpool database a lot and in fact we have a thing for the all the letters for the general practitioners at the bottom is to tell them to look at the Liverpool database and I tell patients who like to use the internet <laughs> yeah use the Liverpool database uh, and as you say contact us so yeah. I, th I think it's um, there are other databases of course but I, th I think it's an excellent one and easy to use um, so so really from these cases uh, you know the the problem with comorbidities and co-infections is that the choice of drugs has to change. Um, avoidance of drug-drug interactions, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite astounding, actually, when you see some of the research and the data done on how many drug interactions, uh, potential drug interactions there are when patients' therapy as a whole has been taken as account. And, and this guy could have taken herbal therapy, he would have never known. Uh, um, uh, uh, these over-the-counter drugs are, are also especially important for us to ask about. Uh, and communication with the patients, yeah, obviously, that's our bread and butter and that's what we need to do and make sure that they're very confident in, in letting us know what any therapy change might be. Um, and healthcare professional education, well, that's ongoing, and uh, awareness that, that many of the drugs we use, and not just in HIV, but in lots and lots of different areas. I mean, look at the, uh, the, the boosted drugs we've seen in COVID being used. So uh, drug interactions really are something that all of us have to be aware of. But I've got a first question here, which is the role of a new, recycling nucleosides, even when you've got K65R or other resistant mutations. Uh, we've had that data from Nadia, and, and, and so Anna-Maria, what do you think about the role of recycling? So we have data now to show that uh, you can recycle, uh, recycle um, tenofovir um, with 3TC or FTC in patients who have experienced um, biological failure on those drugs. Um, the data from the Nadia study indicate that uh, the vast majority of people who entered the study had an M184V um, and about a bit more than a half 
uh, of the population had AK-65 or anyway resistance, uh, some level of resistance to xenophobia. Now, the combination of the two, so the 184V plus, say, a K65R, will actually be such that almost neutralizes resistance effects for xenophobia. So it's the combination of these two antagonistic resistance pathways that ends up making the virus, in fact, quite susceptible to xenophobia, explaining why we see this ongoing activity um, of xenophobia despite the presence of resistance. So yes, the data support the fact, but remember it's the combination of the 65R, for instance, um, uh, with the 184V. So it would be important to maintain pressure on both um, pathways of resistance, so to keep the, T the FTC or 3TC as well as the tenofovir. Yeah, and in Nadia, everybody went on to either that or AZT. Or AZT, yeah, and it's so, the same with AZT. So, so it was same, both together, same, yeah. yeah. So, so actually, 3TC has been with us for a long, long time, and uh, although it seems to be a fragile drug in terms of barrier to resistance, an important drug in therapy. Yes. Not the same for abacavir, just to be complete in our description. For abacavir 3TC, the resistance pathways 184 plus A65 or 74, they are convergent. So they actually, when they come together, they increase the levels of resistance to abacavir. So they don't antagonize each other. So it's not the same mm -hmm. for that. Uh, uh, Andy, there's a, a question here about uh, devolving care to complex patients to uh, general practice and into the community. Wow, God, we've got one minute, 40 seconds left. Yeah. Why, how can I answer that one? I mean, there's a huge number of uh, benefits and a huge number of other things that we need to consider, potential risks as well. Um, I think that a lot of the routine care of people that I see in my clinic could easily be done in primary care. I think as long as the blood monitoring is done and that there are quick routes to detecting whether someone has a, either an intolerance or develops a, a uh, detectable viral load and then routed in, I think that mitigates some of those risks, but this is a debate for another day, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got some patients, especially during COVID, et cetera, who live far away, mm -hmm. who went and got local mm -hmm. viral loads done, uh, and it seemed to work quite well. Uh, but you've got to make sure, I think, that patients are, are, are monitored by people who've got some special interests still. Uh, yep. uh, but the, the, the blood tests, yeah, they could yep. be done locally, I yep. think. Okay. So we're going to now um, really just say what the take-home messages are, is that resistance is complicated. It, I, I, <laughs> certainly, I don't think to me it's futile. I think there's still, even though, you know, Nadia's been very good about well, how we can re recycle nucleosides, there's a whole issue now of acquired and transmitted resistance and what we do with that. And I think my big take-home message from all of this is that multidisciplinary approaches, uh, not just from us as multidisciplinary team, but looking at the various aspects of the virus, the person, the drugs, etc., are essential in making sure that we get optimal management. And I think research into resistance hasn't gone away. And I think from some, a lot of what we've discussed today still needs a lot of work doing. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.